0: Welcome to the first episode of the Most Notorious Gangsters in the World. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Corey Franchise the host. And what I'm doing with this podcast, y'all, is I'm giving insight on each of the gangsters' life. You know, like in more detail. I do my research. I try to bring facts about the Empire, their life, the rising, the falling, how the organizations were ran. Every episode I have a breakdown. On one of the most notorious gangsters in the world. That you know or may not know. But first is first. I feel like this man right here invented gangster. And it wouldn't be right to start the show off without him. The gangster of all gangsters. The real Scarface. I'm talking about Mr. Al Capone y'all. Man back in this guy's day. He was considered the most powerful man in the underworld. You know what I mean? This man made millions, well, hundreds of millions of dollars with his empire. And for a time, you know, he basically ruled all of Chicago, you know. But his power came from a mix of generosity, brutality, and smarts. If he could pay you off, he would. If he couldn't get your help, he was going to kill you. And not many survived going against him. Everybody knew not to cross him. To Al killing was like a business plan to become the CEO of organized crime in Chicago. But he was king of bootlegging during Prohibition as well. So it became more popular than the corporate execs and other people at the time. Actually he was and still is the most famous gangster of all time to me. That's why he's on the podcast first. His first name is Alfonso last name Capone he was born in 1899 born in Brooklyn, New York his parents were immigrants from Italy they came to America in 1894 with their three children before Al his mom was a very religious person and they said his father was a barber so it wasn't his parents that rubbed off on him that was just in him to do what he wanted to do but he did grow up rough in a crime field area They struggled for a long time Until Al was like 10 And they finally couldn't afford to You know put the family into another house In another neighborhood But that didn't stop Al from joining the toughest gangs He stole stuff He fought You know whatever he had to do He already came from the rough life He dropped out of school at 6th grade He smacked his teacher And then he got a thrashing from the principal After he dropped out He started shooting pool, and then he started shooting guns. He tried working a regular life, you know, as most try to do. You know, he worked at a bowling alley, a cloth cutter, and a munition factory. Also, he worked at a bar owned by a local gangster named Frankie Yale. That's where he got his first dose of mob life. That's also where he got the scar on his left side of his face, where he disrespected someone's sister. Another local guy named Frank Delugiano. He leaned over Frank's table and told Frank's sister. You have a beautiful ass. And I mean that as a compliment. So defending his sister. Frank pulled out a knife and sliced the side of his face. Which gave him the name Scarface. Around that time Capone was hungry. He would soon link up with a sharp Brooklyn mobster. Johnny Torrio who was Al's role model. But Torrio had to move to Chicago to run another organization for the Vice Lord, Big Jim Colosimo. Big Jim had a string of gambling locations and whorehouses. As things got bigger, Torrio needed a second in command. And who does he recruit? No other than Al. With the passage of Prohibition, Al would be a great asset to Torrio. Al had the alcohol, the people loved drinking. It went together. Al was 19 now, and became a father and a husband. He married an Irish woman, Meg Coughlin, and shortly after, he moved to Chicago in 1919. His plan was to move in, take over, and kill whoever he had to. But first he had to learn from Torrio, his mentor. He was bartending, he was a bouncer again, he had to pimp a little bit. He did all of this at Colosimo's Club, where all the hot rollers were. Torrio saw dollar signs with bootlegging, but Calasimo felt he was too rich. He didn't want to engage in it. So Torrio set up a hit. He had Al arrange it. Al got Frankie Yale, his old boss, to do the job. In May 1920, in his own club lobby, the hit style was to show that his murders were planned and deliberate. On top of that, witnesses always got sudden amnesia. Rose quickly in the underworld though But didn't want to be thought of as a criminal But as a gentleman He was stylish, flamboyant He wore green and yellow a lot He wore 11 carat pinky ring Italian silk underwear And a milky white fedora hat He loved the nightclub attention He always kept it generous So people never seen the evils Once Capone's father died In 1920 of a heart attack He moved his family to chicago in a 15-bedroom house on the south side of chicago he got his brothers into the business and supported his sisters but outside the family he was a different guy he was unfaithful lived away from home drank a lot and dealing with prostitutes but when he wasn't doing those things he was studying torio and how to bring gangland together to feed the alcohol thirst in 1922 They made a peace agreement with other mobsters, so everyone would get a cut. Then it was big business, because it was all controlled. You had to buy Al's beer. If you didn't, they would bomb your place, blow out the walls, and offer you the money to fix it. But then that means you're in business with him. government said that they brought in $120 million that year, and that was in the 20s. All cash business. Just to duck all the paper trails He guaranteed protection From the law By bribing cops and politicians 50% of the police force was on his side 1922 Press noticed him After a night of drinking too much He had hit a taxi With the car he was driving And injured the driver Pulled out a gun threatening the taxi The real police showed up They arrested Al Charters were dropped He walked away now at 23, Toriyo and Al are at the top of the crime world. As the demand for the alcohol grew, so did the grieve. And the gangland peace Torrio set up was no more. After that, it was bombings, killings, and violence. Around that time, about 700 people in Chicago were killed related to bootlegging. Toriyo and Al won the first round of the wars. Once control was restored, Toriyo took a three-month cruise. In 1924, corruption took a detour when a man who became mayor enforced prohibition, so Al wanted to expand into the suburbs, starting with Cicero first because he knew that would enable him to seal up Chicago. There he cut deals with bribery to local officials to operate beer and gambling organizations. To keep his power, he rigged the Cicero election. He shot, beat up, and held voters hostages who were against mob rule soon after the election his brother Frank died in a shootout with police it was a major effect on Al it turned him even more violent and he felt like his life could be taken as well a week after his brother died he opened up a racetrack where they rigged the races to win now Torrey and Al had their hands in 160 gambling joints and 123 saloons in just Cicero. In Chicago Heights, he helped local mobsters win gang wars and join forces with them. When Torrio returned off his cruise, Al had expanded, formed allies, and made profits. But Capone had one more problem to take care of. The Flores, A north side gangster. O'Banian. He made a mistake by trying to swindle Torrio and Al on a brewery deal on May 19th Torio was arrested in a raid O'Banion knew about but Torio would get his revenge first before going to prison he called on New York gangster Frankie Yale again and two other hitmen they all did the job catching O'Banion preparing flowers they greeted the man shook his hand held it where the other two shot him to death. This started a war and the mob tried to avenge their boss's murder and they came gunning for Al and Torrio, missing Al and ambushing Torrio. Torrio recovered and went to prison. After coming home, he retired and gave leadership to Al, who is now 26 years old. At the time, Al was a moving target he hid out in the plush metropolitan hotel, which had high security and tunnels for quick getaways. He had more security than the president at the time. He rode in a $20,000 Cadillac limo that was armor-plated, seven tons, and bulletproof. Now Capone has to one by one eliminate the ops. In 1925, violence was at an all-time high, with no sign of stopping. Capone and his enemies, has started fighting with Tommy guns, which changed everything. He traveled back to New York in 1926 to take his son to the doctors when he stopped by to give Frankie Yale a present. He wiped out three enemies for him and him and his men were arrested. But as usual, witnesses were silent and the charges were dropped. He gets back into Chicago. 1926, stakes are higher, April 27, outside of a Cicero bar, Al led a five-car assault on a rival gang, wounding three and killing three, one being a public official. Once word got out, Al vanished to Michigan to a cottage with his mistress until the heat cooled down. After a while, he began negotiating and soon after turning himself in. As you guessed it, he was never indicted. At this time, he felt untouchable. But not to everyone. O'Banion's men, Bugsy Moran, and Hemi Weiss, were still after him. He was having lunch at a restaurant. Their men pulled up with ten cars and fired machine guns at Capone in the restaurant. Capone's bodyguard protected him while he ran. It is said that there were around 5,000 bullets fired, but luckily no one was killed. Now his focus is to eliminate Bugsy. He had his men rent rooms overlooking their place of business. And once they spotted Weiss, they opened fire, killing him. Capone claimed he had nothing to do with the murder, and sent his condolences. Soon after Bugsy Moran became the leader of the North Side gang. That late October, he made a peace agreement with Moran and other leaders, saying that it's enough beer biz for everybody. At twenty seven, Al wanted recognition for being an outstanding businessman, being that he employed over 400 people and ran a multi million dollar business. He made an estimated $110 million that year, all off of unlawful enterprises. An ally of his, Big Bill Thompson, was voted back as mayor of Chicago, giving the city a home. When everything was good, I was relaxed. He boxed, he had a good time, he spent time with his son. In 1928, he paid $40,000 cash for a 14-room mansion on Palm Island, Florida, near Miami. Then another 100000 in upgrades to make it a paradise. This was his way of getting away when he felt the need to. But he still had a problem to solve in his organization. Frankie Yale was stealing in shipments from the East Coast. He felt betrayed loyalty was very important to Capone. On July 1st, 1928, Frankie Yale was chased down and shot down by Al's gunman, but he still had Bugsy Moran he had to handle as well. They had been hijacking whiskey and he was fed up and decided to go to Florida that December to mastermind his most infamous crime yet, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Morning of February 14th, 1929, Moran was late to his warehouse. His men were there waiting on a shipment when four strangers walked in. Two dressed regular, two in police uniform. The men thought it was a raid and were told to face the wall and they were all shot to death. Moran pointed fingers at Al but Al had an airtight alibi being in a meeting with the district attorney. So with no one to testify, the case was closed again. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre was the most graphic show of violence. Now Capone would become the target of criminals and law. The publicity of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre was barely over when Al made his next move to clean house. In May 1929, he was told by an informant that John Scolese and two other men were trying to kill him. Capone gained the men's trust, invited them to a roadhouse in Indiana, threw a banquet for them, They had a great time drinking and eating, and at the end of the night, Al and his bodyguard beat them to death with baseball bats, smashing their faces and then shooting them. At the time, a lot of mobs and gangsters distanced themselves from Al. Al had a $50,000 contract on his head, so he figured being in jail, that would protect him and get him out of Chicago. So he set it up. Him and his bodyguard got caught with concealed weapons. On May 16th, coming from a movie theater in Philadelphia, the scheme went haywire when a judge threw the book at them, giving them a year. He tried bribery and giving, but it didn't work, so he ran his business from the phone. He then found out that his organization was now being targeted by the federal government. President Hoover wanted Al Behind Bars bad. He would always ask his workers, Did you get Capone yet? But the IRS was working on it and closing in on his gang. While he was in jail in Philadelphia, his brother Ralph Capone and two other people were arrested on tax evasion. When he got out, March 1930, he was public enemy number one by Chicago Crime Commission. But he wanted people to see him as a good guy. So while the country was in a depression, I opened up a soup kitchen. Chicago's first soup kitchen feeding 3,000 hungry people a day. His generosity made him a hero to media, but he lost his major weight to the press. Jake Lingo, who covers crime and politics and was on Al's payroll, was gunned down. But Al had bigger problems. The federal government, they wanted Al, but technically, he didn't own anything. Couldn't buy real estate, houses in his mom and wife's name, the same with cars. He didn't keep ledgers, but some of his bookkeepers did. Eventually, they discovered the ledgers, deciphered them track codes, you know, to old bookkeepers, then tracked them back to Capone himself. It took them about five years. But on June 5th, 1931, Alphonse Capone was indicted on 22 counts of tax evasion from 1925 to 1929. Capone owed about $215,000. He tried everything to control the outcome, but nothing would work. He sent hoodlums from New York to kill the prosecutor but was unsuccessful. He tried to buy off the jury, but the judge found out and switched the entire jury minutes before the case started. He was found guilty and was sentenced to 11 years, one of the stiffest penalties of any tax case up to date. He appealed and lost, went to Cook County Jail, then to federal prison in Atlanta. In August 1934, he was sent to The Rock, Alcatraz, where he kept to himself because none of his tricks worked there. He was almost killed in prison, getting stabbed in the back with a pair of scissors. In 1938, Al started to suffer the effects of syphilis from one of his prostitute girlfriends. He needed medical treatment in January 1939, he was transferred to Federal Correctional Center outside of LA. In November, he was released from prison and sent to the Union Memorial Hospital in Baltimore. He returned to Florida in on March 1940. Syphilis ate away at Capone the rest of his life. At age 48, January 25, 1947, Alphonse Capone died of cardiac arrest. <clears throat> And his body was sent back to Chicago for burial. It was said that it was a very, very cold day on Al's funeral. 11 below zero. And his funeral was still huge. And even though he didn't have power at the time. The gangsters, the mobsters still came out to show their respects to Al. This is the end of the first episode of Most Notorious Gangsters in the World. Al Capone Edition. With your host, Corey Franchise. Hope you enjoyed. Content will come out two times a week. Make sure you subscribe. Appreciate you listening. Peace. (laughs) Keep the change, you filthy animal.